0: Father, we are grateful that you are in control of every aspect of our life, and even as we heard Dr. Carney mention this morning, even when the world around us seems to be falling apart or is full of storms, you're already not only working where we are, but you're already working where we're going, and you're preparing us to reach that place. Thank you, Father, that you not only are powerful, but that you love us. So, Lord, as we look at Elijah and we talk about what happens in our life when we become tired and afraid, Lord, I pray that you will just add on to what we've already heard from our pastor, that you are in control, you do love us, everything's going to be okay. So, Lord, teach us today and help us specifically in situations that we're in right now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, look with me at 1 Kings chapter 19, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, Elijah. The title of our lesson, what we'll talk about this weekend next week, is I Am Tired and Afraid. Uh, fear and fatigue are facts of life. I mean, we, we all go through them in many different shapes, and many forms. We all get tired. We get tired physically. We get tired emotionally. We get tired relationally, and as Dr. Carney mentioned this morning, that usually leads to being tired spiritually. Sometimes we actually get so tired, we don't even know how to pray. That's why Paul said in the book of Romans that a lot of times we get so jostled up in our life that when we pray, we don't even know what to say when we pray. So the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot even be uttered. So fear and fatigue are a fact of life. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been asked to do something that was to take place at a time in the future? And until that time came, you literally were scared sick over knowing that I was going to have to face this. Maybe it was when you were in high school or college and it was your first speech in front of your speech class of 200 people that you were going to have to give, or maybe it was a test result from the doctor that you feared would not be favorable, or maybe it was something at your work, that you had a review coming up with your boss, and you were going to have to sit before your boss and give a review of what you were going through. I don't know what the situation may have been, but have you ever been in a situation where you knew an event was coming in the future? And you were nervous or afraid about that. Well, if you haven't been there, you will be, unless you crawl in a hole somewhere and never come out. We all face those. Everybody does. And so Elijah was in a situation like that. But I want you to notice at the beginning of Elijah's story, he had a situation like that that he was going to have to confront. But it doesn't appear that there was any fear or fatigue when this took place. The point being, I don't think Elijah was always like this. I think Elijah was a very strong, a very bold, a very trusting man with God. So let me show you this. Look at chapter 19, 1 Kings 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. And we're going to talk about the first part of our lesson today. And that's the part of the common denominator of difficult tasks and situations that come into all of our lives. I believe that Elijah had a very difficult situation to come into his life that did not create fear. I think he faced it and actually did a pretty good job. So let's look at this situation in his life. Turn with me back to 1 Kings chapter 16, and let me show you the first part of this situation in Ahab's life. Um, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse number 29. Let's take... Yes, sir. Okay. In 1 Kings 16... Um, And verse 29, we find out who was king when Elijah was doing his thing, all right? Look at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. You know, one of the things that's interesting, whenever you look at people in the Bible who apparently are not pro-God, They are anti-God, anti-right, anti-doing-what-God-wants. It appears sometimes that these people do wrong and God whacks them real fast. That's not always the case. Even the psalmist was discouraged because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And God reminded him that ultimately that type of lifestyle does not end good for that person. But you have to be patient because God is patient and God is gracious. And God gives us every opportunity to turn from that kind of lifestyle and do what he wants us to do so we don't end up that way. Every one of us ought to thank God that he doesn't, quote, whack us the moment we do something wrong. He's gracious and he's patient because every one of us do wrong. Every one of us have lapses in our character, what little some of us might have. I mean, we're human. We do that. So God is patient. But I want you to notice, Ahab, at no point in his reign, was he a godly king. At no point. How long did he reign? Twenty-two years. For twenty-two. Two years he disobeyed God killed God's prophets worshipped false gods sacrificed children to these gods Baal worship for 22 years God allowed this to go on and you know I, I can imagine that there were a lot of people during that time that looked at Ahab, he's the king he does whatever he wants he's outwardly prospering for 22 years. I can imagine that his lifestyle probably caused some people to think, is it really worth it to try and live for God? I mean, after all, look what happened to the people that are living for God. The prophets of Jehovah are being killed by Ahab. I mean, why in the world would I want to live for God? I mean, Ahab, the prophets of Baal, they're all prospering. They're eating at Jezebel's table. They're going to the banquets. They're having a great time. God's prophets are all getting killed. I I, I don't know if I want to make that choice. But Elijah did. Okay, so Ahab is the king. Look at verse 30 at what the Bible says about Ahab. Ahab, son of Amri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. When Ahab came on the scene, he was the worst of the worst. There had never been a king in Israel worse than Ahab, and they had some pretty bad ones. He was the worst. Let's keep going. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat, a previous king. He, oh, the stuff he did—that's that, that's tiddlywinks to me. I mean, that's trivial. But he also married. I thought. I always thought it was interesting. It compar- he, the Bible compares the triviality of Jeroboam's sins to him marrying Jezebel as the thing that is far beyond the wickedness of Jeroboam. I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest sins he committed was this woman he married. In a minute, you're going to see why. He said, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal. King of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. The reason he began to serve Baal and worship him was because that's what Jezebel did. I mean, she was the daughter of a man whose name actually had Baal in it. So he marries this ungodly woman who begins to influence him to worship her gods. Now, we'll just stop right here for a second just because... You know, this is primarily a singles class, and and I know you guys one day to be thinking about this, maybe. It is so important that you marry the right person. And for those of you that have been around a while, you know this. If you marry the person God has for you, there is nothing closer to heaven on earth than a godly marriage. But you marry the wrong one, and there will be nothing in your life closer to hell on earth than your marriage. And that's the truth. That's why... Don't get in a hurry. Do everything the way God says and make sure you do it right the first time. You don't want to have to go through this twice. And you don't want to have to go through the breakup of a marriage. I know I've been there. It's no fun. Okay? So, that's all I'm going to say about that. Avoid the Jezebels or the Mr. Jezebels, ladies. Okay? All right. Verse 32. He set up an altar. Now, this is part of the worshiping. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an asteroid pole and did more to provoke the Lord. What an idiot. I mean, have you lost your mind? Provoking God? You know, it's a good thing God's patient. For 22 years, he provoked God and God was patient with him. 22 years. The Bible says he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. My word, what kind of a man is this? Now, the reason I want you to see this is that this is the man to whom Elijah confronted with a prophecy that I'm going to show you in just a minute. But before we do that, in chapter 17, let me give you real quick a list of five things that Ahab did. Okay, I'll I'll tell you what they are. I'll give you the passages of scripture where they're talked about so you can write them down. So I'll, I'll try and go slow enough where you can write this down if you want to, okay? Number one, he instituted Baal worship. We just read about that. That's 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 31 through 33. He instituted Baal worship. By the way, remember now, he is the king. This is not some little small business owner off on the side somewhere. This is the king, the president of Israel, the head guy, nobody bigger. This is the king doing this, all right? So he instituted Baal. Number two, he allowed Jezebel to kill the Lord's prophets. He allowed Jezebel, his wife, to kill the Lord's prophets. That's 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. 1 Kings 18, 1 through 4. Number three, he was a partner in Elijah's death threat, by the way, that his wife Jezebel made. He was a partner in Elijah's death threat. That's 1 Kings 19, verses 1 and 2. 1 Kings 19, 1 and 2. Number four, he provoked Jezebel to kill Naboth and steal his land. And some of you know the story of that, where um, Ahab wanted a vineyard that was close to the palace, and Naboth owned it. And so he goes over there and says to Naboth, Will you sell me your vineyard? He said, No, I can't. It's an inheritance. It's owned by my family. And they did not allow that to happen. And so he goes back and he tells his wife Jezebel, kind of whining. He goes back and he says, Naboth wouldn't sell me his vineyard, and so I can't have what I want. And by the way, the Bible says he goes in and lays down on his bed and pouts like a little baby. Jezebel came in and said, Why are you pouting? Why are you laying here whining and crying? Well, because Naboth won't sell me his vineyard, and I can't have that vineyard that I want, and I really, really want that vineyard. Jezebel said, get up off your bed. In the modern-day vernacular, she said, you big wimp, get up. I'll get that vineyard for you. You big coward. So you know what she did? She worked out a plot, had Naboth killed, came back and said, Honey pie, I got your vineyard for you. But she committed murder. Naboth died. Elijah knew about all that. But Ahab was a partner in all that. Okay? And by the way, that takes place in 1 Kings chapter 21. The whole chapter tells that story. All right? And then finally, number five, he was evil and was provoked by Jezebel. I'm going to read this to you because I want you to see this. This is 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 25 and 26. This is the final epitaph of Ahab. This is what the Bible says about him when he's nearing the end of his 22 years. 1 Kings 21, verse number 25. The Bible says, There was never a man like Ahab, who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and look at the last part of verse 25, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. You know, when I read that, and I think about that, It reminds me of the power of relationships, good ones and bad ones. If bad ones can have this kind of an effect on someone, why can't a good relationship have the opposite effect? If we are connected to the right people with the right values and courage and strength, would that not make it easier for us? Sure it would. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, that we're not to forsake gathering together as believers because we need to come together to spur one another on and encourage one another. That is a critical fact of the Christian life in today's world. So bad, good relationships have huge impacts on our life, okay? So those are the things that Ahab did. This is the guy that Elijah has to face. Now go back to 1 Kings chapter 17. And Elijah is going to have to deliver a very difficult message. This is where we come to that idea I mentioned to you earlier. Did you ever have something you had to do in the future that until it came, you were kind of nervous or afraid about it? Well, I believe Elijah probably had that because in 1 Kings 17, the Bible says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives and my serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Evidently, God told Elijah, I want you to go and meet with Ahab. And here's what I want you to tell him. I want you to tell him, basically, because of your wickedness, it is not going to rain around here for three years unless I, Elijah, say it is. Now, remember who he's going to tell this to. Remember who Elijah represents, okay? Let's stop and think about this for a minute. We need to relate this to reality, not just a Bible story that you heard in Sunday school. Elijah is one of the Lord's prophets, one of the main ones. What has been happening to the Lord's prophets? Yeah, Jezebel's been murdering them. Yeah. The king and his wife have been executing People just like Elijah for being what Elijah was being, a prophet of God. Second of all, God says, I want you to go and talk to the king. The king, not the small business owner on the corner, the king. Third, I want you to go talk to the king and you already know what kind of person he is. He's not exactly the kind of guy that when you walk in is going to have compassion Now, can you imagine if you were Elijah and God said, this is what I want you to go do? Do you think maybe we might be just a little bit concerned? Maybe just a little bit afraid. I can tell you, I'd be scared to death. God has asked me to do things in my puny little old life that I get afraid of. And they're nothing compared to this. But you know what God's telling us? If I ask you to do it and I direct you to do it, I'm going to take care of you because that's exactly what happened. But I want you to notice this. Elijah does not appear to be afraid. He walked right in there and he said, as the Lord lives, and by the way, he does. I know you don't think he does because he letting you get away with all of this, but he does. It is not going to rain for the next three years except at my word. In other words, not only Ahab is it not going to rain, and I'm telling you, and it's your fault because of your wickedness, but I'm the one that controls it. So, na nah, 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 take that. Now, I want you to notice the very next thing God tells Elijah to do. Verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide. Now, I wonder why God said that. I mean, any ideas? Maybe Ahab might have been getting a little upset. Isn't it interesting that God didn't say, just stand there until, Abraham gives you, or until Ahab gives you some kind of response? He said, no, nope, I want you to deliver the message. I want you to leave here. Don't hang around. You know, it doesn't take a PhD to figure that out. And I want you to go hide. Why? So he can't find you. By the way, we learn later on from one of um, the servants that works with Elijah, Obadiah, we learned that Ahab and Jezebel had been looking for Elijah everywhere. And if anybody knew where he was but wouldn't tell them, and they found out, they got executed. So there was a reason why God said, I want you to leave, I want you to go hide. Now, can you imagine Elijah thinking, oh boy, what have I done? I got this guy and this crazy woman after me now. Man, it's like pronouncing that you're gonna testify before the grand jury against the mob boss. I mean that's not the kind of thing you do to encumber the compassion of the mob. And God says, now I want you to go hide. And I, I can imagine Elijah if you well Elijah probably didn't I would have I'd have been thinking, God, I sure hope you've got a good hiding place. And he did. But you know what? While he was hiding, God took care of him. So I want you to see this, and, then, and we're going to stop here. Okay? So the common denominator is a difficult task. We're all going to face difficult things in our life, things that will create fear. That's going to happen. If you've never been there, you're going to be there. Okay? It's going to come. Elijah faced it, and it appeared he faced it with courage. So, so and, and we're building up to next week when Elijah finally has his collapse. And this big, strong, courageous man all of a sudden breaks down. And, and we're going to see why. But I want you to notice what he experiences in his relationship with God. And, and this is important because it, it builds towards what God is trying to teach us. So let me give you three things. Um, if you're taking an outline, point number one is the common denominator. Point number two is courage and victory. And that's what Elijah experienced with God. He experienced three things. Let me give them to you. You can write them down. Then we'll go back and look at them and be done. Number one, he experienced God's direction. God told him where to go. And he did it more than once. Number two, he experienced God's provision. God took care of him everywhere he directed him. And number three, he experienced God's power. So let me show you these three things, then we'll be done. Number one, God directs him. He experienced God's direction. In 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 2, we read it. God said, I want you to leave here. I want you to go hide. Well, where did he send him? He sent him down to a brook on the east side of Jordan. He says in in verse 4, chapter 17, You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Interesting. God said, I have given orders to the birds to bring you food. You know what? If God can use a donkey to rebuke a prophet, and God can use birds to feed a prophet, the truth is he really doesn't need us. He really doesn't. But you know the great part about it is? But he wants to use us. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need us. The animals obey him a lot better than we do. People think that donkeys are stubborn. Probably not as much as a man. That's why he chose the donkey to talk to the prophet and not a man. Sometimes we can be a whole lot more stubborn than the donkeys. Okay? So God doesn't need us, but he wants to use us. That's a privilege. So he, he says, I'm going to take care of you. And, and by the way, he did. He took care of him. But notice what happened in verse number 7, chapter 17. Sometime later, the brook dried up. Now, he he probably was getting comfortable. Remember, he's there for about three years. Uh, By the way, not at the brook, but he's hiding for about three years. Because after three years, he goes back, and he says it's going to rain, and we'll talk about that next week, actually. But he's going to be gone for about three years. How long he was at the brook, not sure. But he was there a while, long enough to probably get comfortable. I mean, nice brook, here's the water. The birds are bringing me food every day. You don't find him complaining about it. Then all of a sudden, one day, he wakes up, the brook's dried up. Oh no, God, now what? I thought this is where you wanted me to be. I thought I was where you led me. I thought this is where you want me to stay. God said, No, it's time to move on. That's why the brook dried up. And you know, God's going to do that in your life and mine. God will lead us to places in our life, whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a physical locality, whether it's a type of a ministry. God will lead us to a place in our life, and when He's done with us there and ready for us to move on, the brook dries up. You know why? Because if the brook never dries up, we never want to leave. So the brook dries up, so we'll be willing to leave. Because God needs us to go somewhere else. There's something else I want to use you to do. By the way, He's never going to lead us or use us to do anything that's going to be terrible, it's going to be just as good or better. But, you know, it's hard for us to see that sometimes. So he has to dry the brook up, so we'll move. So he dries the brook up. What did he do? Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. By the way, any time the brook dries up, God's going to show up, and he'll show us what to do. The word of the Lord came to him. He said, I want you to go to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. All right, well, now I know where to go. He says, I, um, He said, I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I can have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks. I'm going to take them home, make a meal for myself and my son so that we can eat and die. And then verse 13, Elijah said, Don't be afraid. Now, I wish we had time to go through all this, and we don't. But God led him to a woman. And by the way, God's provision is not always the obvious, and it's not always the easiest. But it's always a way where there will be no question but that God did it. And after all, that's what he wants to to happen. He wants to get the glory and the credit, not us. So he's always going to do things in a way that we can't take credit, and everybody knows God did it. And that's what he does with the litter. And you know the story. She decided to put God and his word first. That's why Elijah said, I want you to make, you know, you're going to have enough flour, you're going to have enough oil. However, before you make something for you and your son, I want you to make something for me first. You know why? That is a picture of putting God first, and then he takes care of us. And so she did, and the Bible says that the flour and the oil never ran out until the drought was over God took care of. Him. So he saw the provision and then finally he saw God's power. And this is 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 19 through 24 and this is the story of when the widow's son died. And remember the widow was a little bit like Mary Martha when Lazarus died. Why have you come here the widow said? What have I done that you've caused my son to die? And it was not to hurt her. It was so God could get credit and glory. So you know what Elijah did? Bring me your son. God empowered Elijah to bring that boy back to life. And I want you to look with me at chapter 17 and verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that's what God Wanted to happen. He wanted this woman to know it was the God of Israel who was taking care of you. Now I know that you're a man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. There's another passage of Scripture I want to read to you real quick. In chapter 18, verse number 46, the Bible makes this statement about Elijah. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah. Whenever the power of God comes upon our lives, God uses us to do things that are not normal. Things that cannot be explained except God. And I'm not talking about magic tricks. I'm not talking about raising people to life. I'm not talking about doing mystical things. I'm talking about God using us to do things that a normal human being can't do. For example, giving all that we have to provide for someone in need and then God turning around and providing three times what we just gave when we thought there was no way that could happen. God using you to share the simple story of Jesus with a person who's never heard about him and that person begin to fall down in tears and say, I want Jesus in my life because of what you just said. No human being can do that. That's the power of God. God using you to give an encouraging word to somebody who you didn't even know was on the verge of suicide, only to find out later that their whole life changed because of what you told them. That's the power of God. The power of God, when it comes upon your life, gives you peace in your heart when you're going through storms that you cannot explain. Those are the things that only God does. Elijah is experiencing all of this. This is a man with the power of God, the provision of God, the direction of God. But next week you're going to see that even a man like that can collapse under pressure. And we're going to see what happened. Let me give you three character building lessons from this that I want you to take home with you this week. Number one, sometimes our greatest fears will follow our greatest victories. Just when we think we've got life whipped, here comes another one. So be careful. Number two, in times of fear, we have a tendency to forget what we've seen God do in the past. And when we do, we have a tendency to think He can't do it now. If He's done it before, He can do it again. It is good for us to count our blessings, to remember what God had done before. He told the children of Israel that over and over again in the wilderness. Remember what your God did for you when he brought you out of Egypt, when he carried you through the wilderness, when he took you across the River Jordan. Remember what God did because he can still do the same thing. And then number three, there's always, always, always there will be people and circumstances that will be against us when you try and do what's right. Always. So don't ever think that life is going to be hunky-dory and a garden of roses and we never have problems and everybody's going to love us and nobody's ever going to be against us and nobody's ever going to get mad at us and nobody's ever going to talk about us on Facebook or Twitter and everybody's just going to be our friend. The truth is God has blessed us with a lot of friends. And thank God for the friends we have. And that's why we become so important to each other. Because there's a world full of people that are like the Ahabs and the Jezebels who don't understand. And they're not going to be sympathetic. And they're not going to think you're great because you love God. And they are going to make things difficult. But even in the midst of those times, God is still God. Father, thank you for reminding us that we can experience your direction, your provision, and your power. And Lord, even in times, as we'll see next week, of collapse, you still undergird us and take care of us and get us through. And so, Lord, this week, as we potentially face situations and people that will create fear and maybe even fatigue, some of us may be very tired. Lord, I pray for your strength, for your guidance, and for your courage. And may people through our lives this week see Jesus. And it's In his name we pray.